Now to a Catholic school principal who has taken the remarkable step of making his own personal submission to the Royal Commission on Sexual Abuse. He's been refreshingly outspoken in politely telling the truth as he sees it. Paul Tobias is the principal of St Joseph's College, Geelong, a rather large Catholic school. Paul Tobias, welcome to the program. Thanks, Noel. We've asked you onto the program this week because... I came across your submission to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses for Child Sex Abuse. And when I saw it, I thought, that's unusual. I wouldn't have expected a Catholic school principal to make a personal submission like that. And then I read it and I thought, it's a really interesting response. Now, what prompted you to actually make a personal submission in the first place? The Commission invited submissions from Catholic employees particularly around, well, a variety of things, but particularly around structure, governance and culture of our church. I guess I'd been caught up in the whole issue of sexual abuse in the church as a result of my work over the years, and and I thought, well, I think I've got something to say about these things. By that, do you mean, as a school principal, having to oversee the implementation of safety in school? Is that what you mean? No, when I first went to St Joseph's, the community was dealing with the fallout of two very uh, active pedophiles who'd been in our community for a couple of decades and had managed to offend a large number of students. And so in my first year as principal, I um, made a public apology for the abuse that had taken place at the school, and that was well before the Royal Commission back in the year 2000. You mentioned that in your submission to the Royal Commission because... I think you said the words that the Archbishop then at the time, Cardinal George Pell, was his response was sort of muted, I think was what you said. Probably at the time the church didn't see apologies as the way to go. They were in the process of trying to deal with what became a tsunami and I, I was probably a bit of an irritation rather than anything. So when you made that apology, what happened? Was there a response? Was there a reaction? What did people say? There were probably two distinct groups. One group of people saying, um, you're an idiot, you've dredged up um, a lot of stuff from the past that didn't need to come out again. Let sleeping dogs lie, in other words. Correct. Um, And then another group that said, no, look, we really need to do this as a community. If we're going to have any credibility in our local community, then we've got to be honest about what's happened. And that has sort of set you on a course right over your career as as a principal, I think, uh, since that time, which has meant... You've had to, in one sense, carry the flag, I suppose, or defend your position in trying to do something proactive about this. Yeah, I suppose it meant a number of things, Noel. I I think to have inherited that culture was uh, problematic and challenging because the impact of that history on the existing students was that they had become incredibly homophobic because they were being attacked from outside Mm. And their response, I guess, to that was to macho up and um, we had a real problem as a school with homophobic bullying and and that was another issue that presented as a real problem and something needed to be done about it. Not uncommon, I think. In uh, It's a boys' school, yes, is it? Yes, and look, if that's the culture, then you finish up developing an incredibly narrow male stereotype which is uh, doesn't lead to well-balanced and emotionally intelligent young men. Your Catholic school had the Safe Schools program in place. In fact, I think it's the only one in Victoria, the only Catholic school that had it in place. Is that right? I think it's the only Catholic mainstream school. There's one other flexible learning centre that um, has adopted or still a member of the program, but I think we're the only mainstream school. 
I want to come back to your uh, your submission in a minute, but let's let's just talk about that safe schools thing because that in itself is controversial. I've been watching conservative media outlets really try to say that this is basically a Marxist lesbian intervention in our schools, trying to promote gender fluidity. You hear all these sorts of things, and I've had to look into it myself. And I discovered safe schools is a much more general thing about uh, uh, about anti-bullying in schools. And there's also a thing called the Safe Schools Coalition, which has a particular focus. Now, how did you implement it in your school and how did you negotiate through that controversy that was in the public going on? I had five years at the school before I came principal as the deputy principal. And once we named homophobic bullying, we established a little group, which was an anti-homophobic task force, which was a group of us... We didn't really know what we were doing, but we would meet and have breakfast and talk about the problem and how we might resolve it. So we'd actually started doing some work in that space as early as 1998. So when Safe Schools came along, I had a look at the framework of Safe Schools in about 2005, and there was nothing in that Safe Schools framework that I thought every parent sending their child to every school wouldn't sign up for. This is you reading through it, checking it as a, as a principal, as, a, as an educator, as a teacher? Yeah. Absolutely. And that safe school framework still stands as uh, you know, a fine document around um, you know, what educational institutions should be, somewhere where young people can go and can be themselves and can learn without being harassed. I think it's probably fair to say that you and I, in preparing for this, I mentioned to you that I'd looked quite closely into this. There are perhaps some uh, course units uh, in some sections of the Safe Schools Coalition that some uh, Catholics or Christians or Jews or Muslims might not want to use in the classroom uh, and would actually object to, uh, I would be so yes. sure. Yeah. But the point is that you as a principal and then your teachers actually have to determine what course material you would have used, don't you? Isn't that the way Look, it was? We, we weren't using much of the course material or, or in fact any of it at all, but we were happy to be members of the coalition and we would occasionally look at things like posters that were up on the webpage and we might be able to use those for a particular day that mm -hmm. uh, we were having to um, celebrate diversity or something like that. So we weren't strictly following with the curriculum. What, what we were doing is sort of standing in solidarity with probably one of the most marginalised groups of young people in our community, and, and Catholics should be really good at doing that. Catholics should be really good at it, I suppose, in one sense, because that word Catholic is meant to be universal, and the, the current Pope talks about this stuff. But I went through a Catholic school, I taught in a Catholic school, and I think... Uh, in a way, with this particular issue of homophobia or sexual identity, the Catholic Church does have, I think, some challenges because in its own teaching in the catechism, there's some pretty tough stuff in there. Yeah, there is a lot of tension. And um, I guess the tension is how do you take a clear position on homophobic bullying? How do you remain authentically pastoral to the young people in your care? Mm and suffer often people coming at you saying, oh, well, look, what what actually you're doing is promoting a gay lifestyle. That's a nonsense. You know, I think there's so much in our Catholic DNA that allows us to walk with the marginalised, to promote diversity. I mean, we believe in a Christ who is radically inclusive. And I think if you start marginalising and excluding large numbers of people, we're, we're not headed where we should be. And so um, I guess I've consistently had a bit of a battle uh, in the Melbourne Archdiocese around that. 
my guess is that you're pretty standout in, in trying to deal with these things because that is in part why you're talking to us now, though, because you made a submission to the Royal Commission and in it you talked about how power works within the Catholic Church, really, how authority works, how principles relate to bishops. And in fact, I think you even called that relationship possibly immature. Was that a word you used? Yeah, and that, that's possibly a generous summation of all of that. I guess what people need to understand is that the Catholic Church, in terms of its structure, is incredibly hierarchical. And so that's a top-down approach mm. that has its strengths, but it also has its weaknesses. And I think some of the weaknesses have probably been exposed in the um, Royal Commission. Well, certainly they've been looking through how authority didn't work, how things weren't reported, how things weren't dealt with. But you've introduced, I think, another aspect of this, and that is school principles are quite an important part of Catholic culture. I mean, they're in one sense the front line of education, cultural change, culture maintenance, the handing on of culture. That's what you guys are doing in, in, in many respects. You talked about the relationship between Catholic school principles and the hierarchy needing to develop and change. What do you mean by develop and change? I can, I guess, reflect about my experience of writing to the Director of Catholic Education asking for some explicit guidelines around homophobic bullying mm. and um, I guess getting a flat no. I started writing in 2004 and that issue has rightly been identified this year and I'm actually sitting on a working party to now do something about it. But in the interim... Mm. Um, that issue was ignored. And so I suppose you have a Catholic principal saying this is a pastoral issue that needs some attention and you have a community within the church saying, no, we're not going to address that. When you say saying we're not going to address it, do you mean at the level of bishops? Is that what you're saying? You know, I would guess that's, um, yeah, that's where the, it, it hit the problem. I think people that I was talking to in the Catholic Education Office seemed to have a good understanding and some empathy, but that was rejected, I think, at a much higher level. When you say you had a problem with homophobia in the school culture, that there was a macho culture, yes. what sort of problems were presenting? Boys turning up in my office in tears with uh, having been subjected to a whole lot of verbal abuse around being a gay or a poof or queer or... Mm this sort of stuff, and all of which erodes the self-esteem of young people at a critical time when they're going through puberty and, and sort of trying to discover themselves as young people. So a lot of trauma. Now, some of those people possibly were questioning their sexuality, but a lot of them weren't. They were just politely spoken or good at mm -hmm. music or good at their schoolwork, and this provided their peers with a uh, an opportunity and a target. Yeah. And You're I, describing I the school I went to, I've got to say, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, okay, but it's very difficult to learn and to discover your identity and to achieve your potential if that's your surroundings in school, and, and that's why, you know, safe schools are important. When you came into the school, you, you first were dealing with the effects of sexual abuse. That was a serious matter. Yes. How did that connect in your mind pastorally with this homophobia stuff? Because in one sense, they're two different issues, but yeah, both they of them are. are connected to power, I suppose. But sometimes in people's minds, it gets mixed up. My, my best way of describing it is, in some respects, the community had turned in on itself. It was shamed and mm. um, ashamed. And a way of sort of 
the boys trying to prove that this wasn't the case was them machoing up. And, a hyper-masculinity um, of sorts. That's, that's pretty much it. And that resulted in, therefore, somehow this turning on those who were not trying the hyper-masculine sort of uh, pose, I suppose. Is that, is yeah, that what, so, what it so often in? the boys caught up would, would be um, good at their work, uh, quietly spoken, just going about their business but trying to do their best and they'd be targeted with some of this homophobic abuse. How effective was the safe school stuff in assisting you with this? We genericised our own way of dealing with it, but a, a fair bit of our approach was around educating our staff of, of naming a problem and then learning how to deal with, how do you respond when someone says in class, oh, that's gay, you know. Um, yeah. I, I think teachers, uh, if it's a racist comment, they're very, They'll they're, move on they're, well, they're well equipped to deal with that. But I, I guess what we discovered was that our staff weren't super well equipped to deal with discussions around that and, and, and we needed to get better at that. Why do you think that is, though? Uh, what's going on there? Is that part of the Catholic culture? I mean, for those who are not Catholic who are listening to this, why in a Catholic classroom would a teacher have trouble dealing with another one boy bullying another boy and saying that's so gay? I don't know if I've got an adequate answer to that, but I know it's an issue. And in our particular case, it was it was heightened, and because of how people had responded to the abuse. Right. I think we probably identified that we did have some staff who, you know, needed to reconsider their own attitudes and their own positions. And I I suspect that could be a challenge more broadly across our community. Paul Tobias, you haven't only worked in your own school uh, on this stuff because there are other schools. I mean, I heard Christian Brothers Lewisham was looking at, you know, some program material in this area. I've heard there are other things happening. And you've been involved in some of this, I think. Yes, Noel, I'm currently involved with two working parties, uh, one with Edmund Rice Education Australia, which is the Lewisham Connection, Mm -hmm. and the other one with the Archdiocese of Melbourne. And both groups are looking at appropriate guidelines and anti-homophobic resources that might be able to be um, used within the Catholic sector. So that's a really encouraging development, certainly in the Melbourne Catholic Archdiocese and also within uh, Edmund Rice schools around Australia. When we were researching you, we found a headline in a newspaper saying, you know, principal says Catholic church not suitable to be running schools. I looked at it and I thought, that must be a sub-editor gremlin, is it? Unfortunately, it is. Henrietta Cook from The Age wrote that story, and you know how it works, Noel. The the journalist writes the story, and then the sub-editor gets to put the headline on it, and when I saw it, I was a bit horrified. It's um, not uh, an accurate reflection of my submission. I guess if you're going to be outspoken in the press, um, you can occasionally get stitched up with a headline, but (laughs) I'd have to say that Henrietta Cook is a journalist that I respect enormously. My biggest worry about that headline was that it, it reflected on a whole lot of good people and um, uh, that was never my intent. Paul Tobias is our guest on Sunday nights around Australia at the moment. He's the Catholic principal of St Joseph's College in Geelong. He's made a submission to the Royal Commission in, into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. It caught my attention and then I noticed so many other interesting things he's been doing in his school and more broadly in Australian education. 
Paul, do you mind if I start with your own faith in this second part of the interview? Because I think it's always, you know, parents want to know, people want to know he's, he's a Catholic school principal. Is he into it himself? Is he committed? <laughs> uh, I've been um, a practising Catholic um, pretty much all my life. You're in. I discovered, though, that you need to do a little bit of thinking for yourself rather than have other people tell you what to think. And I suppose <laughs> the beginnings of that were around my um, father not being a Catholic, being an Anglican. I guess all of the heartache that that caused for me as a young boy growing up as a Catholic. And, ah, you've um, got something in common with Cardinal Pell then. He was in the same situation. There you go. Yeah, I, I hope he had a better time of it than I did. <laughs> what what was that because this, the the church itself was difficult with you? What what was going on? I just think um, as a church we were incredibly exclusive, um, oh. and um, I mean if you think of the Anglicans, they're more Catholic than the Catholics. But you know, non-Catholic oh, was a be. big thing. <laughs> I mean, just on a simple theological level, you know, my mum and the rest of us, we, we were okay. We could go to heaven. But, of course, my dad wasn't because he wasn't a baptised Catholic. But they said that I, to you, seriously? They did indeed, and I struggled with that. I thought my dad was a pretty good guy, and, um, yeah, that didn't fit too well. So I guess I uh, started to think a bit more independently and... Um, started to sort of filter some of the things that I was being taught and I guess I've continued to do that throughout my life. Is that maybe a beginning of your, your awareness of of the needs for diverse communities? Is that where some of that sensitivity or, or insight has come from? I think it is and my dad was a wonderful person and um, had a uh, really harsh exterior but but a really soft interior and, and a mm. sort of desire to help the underdog and... and um, you know, I respected him and I couldn't accept that he wasn't going to be going um, to heaven if there was one. Let's talk a little bit about your career and, and why you've decided to be outspoken as you have and also to get involved in the sorts of responses that you, you're working with as well to, to the problems you're perceiving within the system. I can see, you know, you were a teacher in a Christian Brothers College at St Kilda you were deputy principal at St Joseph at Warrnambool, I think you've mentioned, deputy principal in Emmanuel College, Warrnambool, uh, at St Joseph's College, Geelong then. That's a long career in Catholic education. Yeah, it's 40 years in all, Noel, and, and I'd have to say to you, I've, I've loved working in every one of those communities, and um, it's given me enormous pleasure. It's been an absolute privilege. I guess... Um, it's not as if I've been some sort of disaffected, unhappy person. But when we've had a crisis that is as massive as the child abuse crisis has been, and when the Commission gives people an opportunity to be reflective about things like structure and governance and culture, mm. um, why wouldn't you take the opportunity to reflect on that? I guess the the big danger is we don't reflect and we continue making the same mistakes. And I think there are things that need to change in the relationship between the principals and the hierarchy of the church in, insofar as our schools are concerned. And I think there are some changes that need to be made in our church. You pointed out, uh, for example, in your submission that in uh, Victoria, and I think this is also the case in, in other states, that the parish priest is canonically the head of the parish school. 
and that this is sort of an odd situation. There's a principle called subsidiarity in canon law, which means you should leave those who are competent at the right level to do their job and not interfere from the top if you can avoid it. And I think that's what you're pointing to here when you talk about that relationship between parish priests and primary school principals, for example. It is, Noel. My, my experience has been as a secondary school principal, but I did spend some time as the chair of a primary school board. Yeah. I think we would acknowledge from the evidence before the commission that that may have not been a particularly good structure when um, that is the parish priest being uh, the employer and the person effectively often hiring and firing the principal and other staff. And in and, some cases um, the abuser, by the way. That's correct. So uh, I think we've known for a long time that um, for a whole lot of reasons, and and I mean, many parish priests have run a fantastic school. In fact, possibly most of them have, but there are conflicts of interest there. And I think increasingly parish priests can now find themselves uh, with the responsibility of perhaps three or four schools within a clustered parish. And I I just don't think that's a good future model of governance for our Catholic primary schools. Uh, Well, it it might work if there are masters of education and they give themselves full time to it. But I can't see it working practically. As you point out, parishes are being clustered. Priests have responsibility for more, not less, and more schools than they used to even once. Yes. And the time we're examining in the Royal Commission is actually looking at times when there's, you know, basically one, two or three priests in a parish and one could pay attention to school, and one would question whether it was working back then in terms of the way authority worked. Indeed, that's true. And now often you've got one person in that role. And um, I, I just think um, we've known that for a long time, and um, we're going to have to put a lot of work into getting a structure that does work for our parish primary schools. But I mean, now's the time to start being proactive. Let's talk about secondary schools, which which, which covered, we've covered a fair bit about. But how could you change that model of, of authority that exists currently? Because honestly, I was surprised to see a Catholic school principal speak up like you have, because it's just not something that's expected. You know, it's expected that Catholic school principals toe the line, I suppose, like bishops are expected to toe the line or priests are expected to toe the line. Yes, you shut up and do what you're told. The trouble is, if if that's the way it works and there's no possibility of dissent. When something begins which is not appropriate, it can uh, fester. You can't be as effective as you would like to be. So I think compromised um, lines of authority uh, need to be questioned, particularly within the extent of the current crisis. Let me talk to you about two bishops. Uh, uh, One is Bishop Geoffrey Robinson. He wrote a book, I think the correct title was Confronting Sex and Power in the Catholic Church. And he he connected a lot of these ideas that you're talking about, saying repression of sexuality in traditional Catholic thinking, the way power worked and the way hierarchy worked within the Catholic Church, he suggests is really part of the core of the problem of the sexual abuse crisis in itself. I would agree with him, and I thought it was very interesting to watch the way in which Bishop Geoffrey Robinson was treated by his fellow bishops and by the authorities of the church. Marginalised, uh, basically. Marginalised, ostracised, and ultimately um, resigned, I think. As you know, there are bishops who banned him from speaking inside their diocese because he's been outspoken in a similar way that you've been outspoken as a principal, I might, I might add, too. 
There's another bishop I want to talk to you about, though, and that's Vincent Long of Parramatta. Now, I imagine uh, that somebody who's expressed the ideas you have in your submission would find some inspiration in uh, Vincent Long and what he's had to say. Vincent's Anne Clark lecture, which was delivered on the 18th of August, is probably one of the most honest and refreshing pieces of writing I've seen from an Australian Catholic bishop in a long, long time. I think he's prepared to look at the vision that the current Pope is challenging us with, and um, he was incredibly courageous in what he had to say. It'll be very interesting to see uh, his treatment from... um, his fellow bishops around the things that he's talked about, I can only hope that he gets fairer treatment than Bishop Geoffrey Robinson. I do know that there is some concern being expressed, certainly in conservative Catholic circles, about what uh, Bishop Long has said. Let me quote a little piece of it. This is sort of the bit that jumped out at me when I read it. He said, we can't talk about the integrity of creation, so he's referring to Pope Francis's Laudato Si, his, his long letter on the environment. He said, we can't talk about that, the universal and inclusive love of God, while at the same time colluding with the forces of oppression in the ill treatment of racial minorities, women and homosexual persons. I saw the sentence and I thought, now there's a bishop sticking out his neck saying that. I was speaking with a theologian yesterday about that particular lecture and and, um, I hope the person doesn't mind me naming him. It was Dr Wayne Tinsey, who is the Executive Director of Edmund Rice Education Australia. But Wayne was saying that he thought perhaps part of the Pope Francis push is to push to the margins. And Mm. um, Vincent, being a refugee, maybe had an understanding of what it meant to be at the margins or marginalised, and maybe that gives him an insight that perhaps other people don't have. I'm not sure. I've met him a couple of times. I, I, I think he's incredibly personable. He was also the chair of the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria, so mm. I think he knows education. He also is a bishop who manages to connect with young people, and I was encouraged by his courage and his honesty but also by a vision of where the church might be headed. And the sort of church that he talked about was one that, you know, I think there are lots of Catholics who um, that's almost what they've been waiting for, to be part of something less exclusive and more inclusive, a church which is more likely to embrace women and people more broadly, people Mm. who are divorced, I think we've got a lot more work to do as a church just examining our treatment of some of those groups. It's funny you should mention Vincent Long's ability with young people uh, because that quote that I just spoke to you goes on and he says, these things won't wash with young people, especially when we purport to treat gay people with love and compassion and yet define their sexuality as intrinsically disordered. And you look at that and you think... This is uh, a bishop who's actually listening, I think, to the signs of the times among young people, actually, too. I could only agree with your assessment of that. And um, I think that that particular term, um, it certainly doesn't resonate with my personal or professional experience. It's one of those really unfortunate terms that one finds in the catechism and I'm hoping in time someone will review and change that language. 
It's interesting that the current Pope Francis has been talking about a lot of the things that you have been talking about here. I imagine you're getting some inspiration from him too because he's talked about women and the place of women in the church. He's the first Pope ever to use the word gay in public, actually said the word, and then has has initiated a conversation about it. He's talking about reorganising the courier and saying, you know, we have to be simpler, we have to have the smell of the sheep. These sounds like the sort of things that might give Paul DeBar some encouragement, I think. I would hope, Noel, they give the whole Catholic Church uh, across the world some encouragement. I'm no saint. I'm just a teacher who's been doing my best in the roles that I've been in. But um, I think our church in Australia is uh, kind of living in a time warp and... um, I'm hoping that our Catholic bishops will have the vision and the courage to implement the Pope's vision. And I think the beginnings of that are probably um, one of the most newly appointed bishops in Vincent Long at Parramatta to to sort of um, start the conversation. In your submission, I was struck by one line here. I'm just going to read it to you where you said, during my time as principal, Cardinal Pell has been an extraordinarily powerful and influential leader within the Catholic Church. Even from Rome, he exerts, in my opinion, significant authority and power over the direction of the Catholic Church in Australia. I mean, it's obvious that the Cardinal had a a view of the Australian Catholic Church. And he's on the and Congregation for Bishops. He's actually key to the appointing of bishops in this country. He, he is indeed. I suppose when we reflect on where the church has been, you've got to ask questions about how good has the leadership of our church been in recent times. And um, I think for Catholics there's been a double shaming. There's been a shaming that the abuse happened and then there's been a shaming at the lack of empathy for abuse victims and Mm. I have spent time with lots of abuse victims and I find it incredibly difficult work but I never have any problem being totally empathetic in terms of the position in which they find themselves and I think the thing that a lot of Australian Catholics have really found difficult is that having created the problem and tried to cover it up we then have failed to be effective and empathetic pastors, I think that's where a lot of the anger comes in. Having said that, I I found myself defending him a couple of weeks ago at an interfaith um, gathering in the Victorian town of Winchelsea, and I was reflecting on abuse, and as a church we have been shamed, and, and even faithful members of the church feel shamed and are shamed, and they are angry, this group, And I guess directing their anger at Cardinal Pell, which, Mm. uh, I mean, I could understand, but I think we've got to look beyond blame and especially simplistic blame. The Cardinal was part of a structure and a culture and a set of governance procedures that have probably found to be wanting. And um, Mm. it's simplistic to blame him. I didn't think I'd ever be in this space of defending him. In fact, my wife said it in the car on the way home. I didn't think I'd ever... um, hear that. I think it's okay to get angry and it's okay to be ashamed, but we need to be generous in uh, trying to find a way forward. And and it's not a doom and gloom. I think the phoenix often comes out of the ashes. And I'm hoping that Mm. from the crisis comes a rebirth, a new beginning. That's certainly the thrust of what Vincent Long is saying. Um, 
a more inclusive and expansive church which gathers in the people at the margins that we seem to have excluded over a period of time. Paul Tobias, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Uh, It's been a fascinating conversation. This has been a podcast of Sunday Nights on ABC Local Radio. Thank you for listening.